Hello and welcome to Forex Focus, UBP's FX podcast. I'm Peter Kinsella, Global Head of FX Strategy at UBP. And today I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Jens Norvig. Jens is the, uh, the CEO and founder of Exantic Data, a macroeconomic consulting firm. And he's also a founder of a new startup and called Market Reader, which uses AI to, uh, to basically predict what's happening in the marketplace. Uh, Jens is the former Global Head of FX Strategy at, um, at Goldman Sachs. And as well was that a global head of research and an ethics strategy at Nemora. Yes, you're very, very welcome on today's podcast. How are you doing? Thanks for inviting us. It's been uh, taking a little bit of time to arrange, so I'm glad we finally got it on the calendar. Yeah. Indeed, you're, you're a very, very busy man, and we're, we're very, very happy to, to have you on today. Um, Jens, I'll start today's podcast basically with a kind of a segue where we go from you know, your background in, in Goldman and in Nemora, FX strategy, and then you started Exante Data. So, why was it that you started Exante, and you know what did you kind of feel uh, you you know you were going to bring into the marketplace with Exante? It's uh, if I was going to put it in in one word, it's uh, freedom. Uh, when you have your own firm, you have intellectual freedom. Uh, you also have um, freedom as to how you restructure what you do, right? So, freedom to do that kind of stuff was real catalyst for me to. Uh, yeah, uh, go on my own. Super. I, I suppose we, we talk about what exactly to do, right? So you basically are, you know, you know, if, I suppose deconstructing tens of thousands of capital flow data more or less every day. Um, you know, you're presenting that to clients and, you know, around the world in a very sort of that cohesive, coherent manner in which you're able to say, okay, we're seeing big outflows or inflows or phone inflows towards various, um, very, various countries. And the consequence of that is, either bond market might do well, but also that you may see appreciation or depreciation pressures on, on the respective currencies. Uh, is that kind of broadly speaking what you're doing or am I missing anything? Yes, so I think um, uh, we've gone through a kind of evolution, right? So when we launched uh, Exante Data in 2016, actually we were in the middle of a, a kind of balance of payments mini crisis in China. And, and one of the things we were most focused on at that point in time was measuring in real time, like, uh, what is the leakage in the balance of payments? How much uh, intervention does the Chinese central bank have to do to fill the gap? Uh, so we built very um, sophisticated models to, to do that. And actually, the first thing we sold was something we call China flow analytics, which was literally that metric. And even people who traded global equities were interested in buying that. And uh, it's changed a little bit over time what we do, right? So in, in January 2020, uh, we did a conference call with, uh, with clients, which was about a, a new thing called COVID. And uh, we thought that was going to be relevant for our markets. Uh, so we actually dedicated a big part of our team to COVID forecasting. Uh, we don't do that anymore, but we did it for three years pretty much. And the reason we did that, in addition to the capital flows that you discussed, was we thought it actually was a data analytics problem where we had an edge. Even though we were not epidemiologists, uh, from a market perspective, we thought we could forecast COVID in a way that was relevant for markets. And certainly for six months, we could that. Uh, so I think the, the month where Exante Data got the most clients ever was in March 2020, right? Because people had heard we could forecast COVID. Uh, and we could. It's actually much easier to forecast COVID than forecasting economics. <laughs> so uh, we we did that for a while, and, and then obviously in the last um, 
should we call it two years, right? The, the really the most important variable for all uh, markets have been around inflation, right? So again, we have a massive infrastructure for uh, tracking capital flows, but we go where we think it is crucial to have an edge, right? And on the inflation front, uh, we have a very global focus to inflation, right? So instead of just being specialist in, you know, used cars in the United States, uh, we're trying to really look globally. And uh, that's something that we're doing aggressively uh, on the platform uh, as well. So in terms of data, right, we, we absolutely have a lot of capital flows. Uh, but macro has been such a huge factor in all investing uh, since the COVID shock, right? So uh, we think it's actually been easier to have an edge in those uh, domains now than it was back in 18, 19, when macro was, was operating with such low volatility. Yeah, yeah I think that, that's totally fair. Um, if we kind of you know, take it from there, we, you've had the capital flow data, and then you, you do basically, I don't want to call it ad hoc special situations of data, but you know, you, get, you do very, you know, whatever is topical and relevant, and you, you'll do a deep dive on that, be it COVID or inflation. Um, and you then get into market reader. So, you know, you, you've only started with market reader. What, what are you doing there? What, what, uh, you know, what, what do you think is going on? Yeah. So, um, the, the background for Market Reader is that um, I have spent my entire career speaking to, you know, top institutional investors around the world, BlackRock, central banks. Well, central banks, you're not now to, to uh, say any names, right? So, so uh, it's different central banks, but big institutional players in the market, right? And I always thought it it could be very interesting to have something that had a relevance much beyond the absolute top experts. So what Market Reader does is that it solves uh, a problem that literally anybody who trades or saves on rest uh, has, and that is understanding what's going on in the market. Like, why is this asset moving? Uh, why is that down 5%? Uh, why is this sector outperforming relative to another sector and so forth? And Market Reader is a technology that essentially goes through all the different imaginable explanations for price action and puts it into a piece of software. So we try to do in a piece of software uh, similar to what like a, a top trading desk at Citadel or something like that would have done in a more manual sense over the years. And because we have it in a piece of software, we can do it for uh, tens of thousands of financial instruments at the same time, like uh, U.S. single stocks, smart macro instruments, and so forth. And uh, it's really fun to see. Uh, it's really fun to see that uh, you can you can get information from so many places where uh, it's it's just not feasible to do it on the scale as a human. So could be that there's some tweeting going on about a stock, right? Uh, and actually, to go back to the COVID theme, like I, we had a very kind of fun example in, uh, uh, well, from a technological perspective, a fun example in uh, in May, where Margarita told me that uh, Moderna's stock, the vaccine maker, was up dramatically, and there was no news about Moderna, but there was a lot of speculation on Twitter about a new COVID wave in China. So it was kind of like a wake up call to me, like, okay go and look at COVID again in China. And we st restarted our models again, right? And um, and uh, we could see that there was more people having fever and so forth in China. I didn't think it was something that was going to really 
move the market dramatically. But it's very interesting, right, that the market real technology picks something, something that's going on. It has a very rigorous me method to figure out why is it. It attached this Twitter speculation about a new COVID wave to the stock price, right? And it gave me a chance as a human to think about, okay, what do I do with it? Uh, the right trade to do was to actually to short the stock uh, on that occasion, right? Because it kind of overreacted to something. But uh, we got the same type of signal from Market Reader back in March, right? When Silicon Valley Bank was starting to crack that Wednesday afternoon, we immediately got an alert, right? Saying, okay, here's something that never happens to Silicon Valley Bank. I have never had Silicon Valley Bank on my screen. Sure. It forced it on my screen. I had to look at it. By the way, it, all, it flagged very quickly, right? That First Republic Bank was the other one that was sort of next. So it, it kind of like zooms in on where is the epicenter of tension in the market, explain why it is. And um, then we have to figure out what we do with it. But the first step is to uh, understand the market very quickly, very comprehensively, or more assets that you can have on your screen as a human. And... Um, yeah, then obviously different hedge funds will do predictive uh, analytics out of that. Uh, and we, yeah, we're in talks with all kinds of people that uh, want to use the technology. It could be an a individual investor that, that wants to understand what is going on in the market better. It could be a risk manager at a hedge fund. But it could also be, if you take a step back, it's also one that says, okay, once you have done this kind of attribution, explaining all the moves in the market, you can also say at the end of the quarter, Tell me all the important things that happened that are relevant for my portfolio. If you have to do that manually, right, it'll be like pretty much an insurmountable task, right? So this technology could actually do stuff that really is not feasible with existing tools. So that's that's pretty cool. That's that's why it gets interesting to sell it. You know, it certainly sounds very heavy. So I mean, in a sense, really, it's kind of matching old school analysis with AI and modern techniques. I'm I'm giving you, I suppose faster data, uh, you know, faster conclusions, um, or at least, you know, giving you faster data and you can then draw your conclusion from it. Yeah. So, um, it's, and so obviously a lot of people, uh, have become familiar with chat GPT this year. Right. And, um, our system is not something that is built around chat GPT because the market is very complex. The amount of you know, dimensions of analysis that you need to do to have good explanations of market moves is is much beyond what ChatGPT can do on its own. But if you think about it, if we, ha we have four main, main types of explanations for market moves in the system, right? If our models have crunched those four dimensions, we can use ChatGPT to summarize what's going on along those lines. And it might not change the conclusion but the presentation that you can do in a text form now with AI really allows you to present the result in a way where it's much more digestible. And then presentational aspect is crucial. Uh, so it really should not be underestimated. We use AI in other ways as well, but just the presentational aspect is pretty amazing. So that's really, really fascinating. Um I suppose we, we kind of you know, take it from there and we're, we're talking about this you know, new paradigm you mentioned earlier about inflation and so on. Um, I suppose if we, we kind of get your views in a moment, I'm super interested to hear what you'd have to say about inflation, China, the dollar, all of that. So I suppose really we've seen a situation recently where 
you know, post COVID, we had a big spike in inflation for a variety of reasons, but then tended to be what became a, a bit more, I would say, sticky or durable than, uh, than initially expected. And we now have inflation around the world, tradable inflation and, and non-tradable, falling more or less at the same speed at which it initially rose, right? And so I'm um, wondering to hear what your thoughts are on inflation, inflation in the US and, and indeed globally, and you know, what you think is likely to happen from here. Yes. So I, w- I would like to go back to uh, December. In December, I did like, you know, uh, an annual outlook speech uh, for one of the biggest hedge funds in New York. And uh, they had all their portfolio managers from around the world were at an annual offsite. And uh, we talked about, okay, what are some of the key things to watch, right? And in December was when the Chinese economy was just about to reopening, uh, to, to enter the reopening phase, right? We, the COVID wave there was run its course as, as it always does. And uh, the reopening was in the cards. But one question uh, we didn't have the answer to yet. Is China going to have the same inflationary pressure as pretty much all other economies have had as a function of reopening? We didn't know yet. Now we have the answer. The answer is no. It seems like what's going on in China is different. The way they have stimulated the economy or not stimulated the economy is different. And therefore, uh, we don't have this dramatic bounce in inflationary pressure out of China, as we've had United States, Europe, many, many other economies around the world. This is really important, right? Because if we were going to see, you know, bond yields like just break dramatically higher, an obvious catalyst would have been, oh, okay, there's a new inflationary impulse coming from China, but we're not having that. It's a very, very important thing. And you can see it so clearly in the data around the world already, right? You look at breaking down headline inflation into goods and services, right? We've now had five, six months with essentially no goods inflation at all. Not just goods inflation that is at target, but goods inflation that is at zero. And that takes a lot of pressure off what central banks need to do to put services prices lower if they can actually rely on goods price inflation that is less than target, right? That means they can have services prices running meaningfully above target. So um, with that, and obviously some of the improvement you've seen as well in services coming down from very, very elevated level to somewhat more um, manageable levels, right? In the, in the numbers we just had today in the U.S. for July, uh, I like to look at medians. So rather than, you know, stripping out random categories you don't like, I like to look at medians. So the median for services has inflation now uh, coming down uh, from like six and a half a couple of months ago to to maybe four. Uh, so it's not a target, but as I said, if you count it with what's going on in goods, it's much, much closer to target. And I think it's pretty uh, fair to say that the, the Fed is, is looking to chill a little bit now. Uh, so that's important for a lot of things. It means that the uh, ball in the short end of the curve is going to come down. And uh, it means that uh, clearly people who trade the dollar is going to start to look at that variable differently. Uh, carry trades are going to be uh, really impacted by this. So this is very important to what, uh, yeah, like one of the most important drivers of, of global markets right now, for sure. Um, 
But yeah, we can talk about so many many different aspects of this. So I want I want to send it back to you. Let's want to make sure we cover Dublin things you want to cover. Yeah, fascinating, and certainly it's been consistent with you know our message this year. You know, which was that inflation is to keep it falling, right? And uh, certainly the goods price inflation has fallen by you know a lot more quickly than people realize. And you know, China's been a big part of that. And um, Standing on China, um, I noticed in, in one of your, your many feeds, you, you spoke about a huge change in FDI trends towards China. And um, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little bit and just kind of, you know, explain what you think is, is happening or not happening as the case may be. Yeah. Yeah. So so China is, is such an important part of the global economy, right? And um, what's going on in China now uh, doesn't resemble trends in other economies. It's its own cycle, uh, and it's um, it makes it makes a lot of sense that the cycle in China is totally different, right? Because they've had just an incredible growth run, right? They've had an incredible twenty-year growth run, and um, now uh, some of the things they've done to engineer that incredible run. Uh, are creating some very serious side effects, right? So the stimulus that they did after the global financial crisis that generated a global bounce, like a big, big global bounce, like uh, remember the EM rally we had in 2009, 2010, it was pretty epic, and it all came from China. And uh, that was a mega stimulus, right, that uh, generated an incredible amount of debt and uh, what we're seeing in China, right, as, as is obvious from the property news we're getting every day, right, that that debt overhang is, is coming home to roost. And it's very hard to stimulate. Very, very hard to stimulate when you already have, you know, a big sector in the economy that is in serious difficulty. Very, very serious difficulty. Like uh, two years ago, we talked about Evergrande, right? And now... We talk about all the other big property developers. I don't know any property developer in China that is in good shape at this point, right? And um, any kind of stat you look at in terms of, okay, how much construction have you done? Like China is a complete outlier with just an incredible amount of overbuilding any way you slice or dice the data. So the problem is just a big problem. There's no easy fix to it. I find it kind of ironic, right, that we have almost every few weeks we have a wave of kind of optimism about, okay, stimulus in China. But, um, yeah, I don't, I, th- I don't think headlines about property stimulus or headlines about some extra government lending is not going to be game-changing at this point, right? Because it's almost like we have got to run, run the whole, um, we've come to the end of that uh, set of policies being uh, effective. If there was a shift in Chinese policy where we would have a bigger focus on, okay, let's really stimulate the, the ho- household sector, uh, get consumption up, um, savings rate down, that kind of thing, that could be more material, but there seems to be an ideological aversion to doing that. And then then uh, go back to go back to the FDI situation, right? The FDI is like a, a, a specific variable that kind of captures many of these things in one in one number. How much money is coming in from corporations around the world? And during the period in, in 2021, 
when the goal of corporations around the world was to produce as many goods as possible, as quickly as possible, to satisfy the global demand for um, lawnmowers, espresso machines, or whatever people were buying in the, in the COVID lockdown. They invested a, a very significant amount of money in China. Every quarter, there was around $100 billion coming in. Big, big numbers, right? Uh, on an annualized basis, it was not, it was not quite 100, right? Like, like it's called 300 per year, like we were talking about large quantities. The latest number that we got a couple of days ago was 5 billion. So for China, 5 billion is almost nothing. And, and um, I, uh, you, you can go into like intense detail in the data, what's exactly going on. We wrote a public substack about it. Uh, that was called um, the rise and fall of, of China foreign direct investment. You can read that. Um, it's uh, freely available on our Substack. Um, and um, I think that will have a significant effect on on CMY and on wide exchange rates uh, at this point, or is that something you think PBOC are trying to manage? It's something that we have been focused on for uh, at least nine months. Like uh, this, this weakening trend in um, in FDI has been in motion uh, since the lockdowns happened. Like what we didn't know when the lockdowns happened was, oh, it's just something that is due to the lockdowns, or is it more structural? And now the, the answer seems to be it's actually more structural. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so if you have a gap in the balance of payments, like a change in a flow yeah. that is in the region. 300 billion, maybe 250 billion. Yeah, that, that's a big chunk of, of money that's missing. So I think it's absolutely relevant for, for, the, for the Chinese currency. Everybody knows interest rates are low in China. So I think this FDI dimension is one that has been underappreciated, at least until recently. And um, China is certainly trying to manage the currency, right? So but they have these um, fixings that in New York time happens, uh, you know, uh, 9.15 uh, p.m. <laughs> when we're supposed to go to bed here, right? And it's in their morning. That signals, okay, where would they like the currency to go? And that's had some impact over the last couple of weeks. It's it's slowed the depreciation trend in the Chinese currency. Uh, but with those signals, um, it's kind of like uh, uh, they have diminishing returns uh, in the sense that they that signal needs to be backed up by some kind of action if it's going to remain a signal that people pay attention to. And um, uh, going back to, you know, 2015-16, when China last time had balance of payments difficulties, China lost a trillion reserves yeah. in, in, uh, in, in that period. And they don't really want to spend more reserves. Like, they used to have four trillion reserves, now they have three trillion. I'll give you round numbers, right? They don't want to lose another trillion. So they're reluctant to intervene. They're asking their own state banks to intervene a bit here and there. But uh, the question is whether they can keep it. Maybe they'll get lucky that U.S. interest rates are turning so they don't have to do more and more and more. But in the absence of a turn in in U.S. interest rates, uh, I don't think uh, they will hold it. Another way to think about it is on a basket basis versus a broad set of currencies. It seems highly likely that the Chinese currency will continue to be on a weakening trend. Sure. I suppose, you know, it's a fascinating discussion and it's one that we can carry on all day, but I suppose it's time, um, time, you know, limits what we can discuss. And I guess let's finish up. If you had one trait 
you know, one clever edge, one macro trade that you put in a portfolio to benefit in the second half of the year? What, what's that, what would that be? So I think, I think we're in a transition phase here where we don't, we don't know uh, quite yet when the U.S. economy is going to reach a tipping point, right? So I think for now, we have um, a kind of uh, more stable yield curve. Like I know we've had some volatility in the long end uh, around the Fitch downgrade, but I think that was probably a temporary thing. So the short end is going to be less volatile. I think you're going to have a window where carry trades are going to do quite well. Uh, so that could be a, a three-month thing. So that's sort of what's happening right now. And then I, my, my recommendation would be for, for, to look for a real turning point. Because I think, I think one thing that um, often is, is uh, generating too much attention is this notion that, okay, uh, the, the U.S. economy, you know, um, is doing okay, even if interest rates are above 5%. So um, it's, sort of, it's sort of a weird situation, right? We, we had zero interest rates for a long time. Uh, there was a strong consensus that the U.S. economy cannot take any rate hikes at all. Like if you hike 1%, there's going to be trouble. If you uh, hike 2%, uh, the economy is going to already have passed away, right? Now we're 5%, and now there's a whole new literature coming out saying, oh, actually, the U.S. economy is not that sensitive to interest rates. So... It's, it's weird. It's weird how consensus can shift so dramatically. So my kind of response to that would be, okay, we can observe that the U.S. economy has been okay, but we also have to just recognize that there is some very, very long lags in play here. In the United States, most people who buy a house buy it with a 30-year mortgage, right? We have an incredible amount of house owners that have uh, mortgages with very low interest rates that are not feeling the higher rate. But as time passes, as people have to move, have to buy, uh, get into new mortgages, it will have an impact, right? So over time, even if the Fed does nothing, we will have a lot of debt that rolls into higher interest rate maturities, and that will be relevant for the household sector and be relevant for the corporate sector. It's already relevant for everybody who's buying a car. Uh, so over time, what is happening with, uh, what has happened with the yield curve with, would have a big impact. It will have a big impact on the fiscal accounts as well, right? Uh, government bond yields are high, but the, all, all the government debt has not been rolled yet, right? So we still have the actual interest cost being relatively low compared to where the yield curve is sitting. So that's something that will have a big impact as we look into next year. And at some point, that will be relevant for the dollar, right? Because uh, all those, uh, well, there'll be the drag on the economy from the higher rates that will feed in with the lag. And then there's all the flow impacts, like the fiscal accounts will be under increasing pressure. It might even impact the, the amount of austerity we have in the U.S., right? Because if they have a certain fiscal target for the overall balance, well, like with high interest rate burden actually means more pressure on discretionary spending. So that's sort of a, a growth dimension, right? And there's a flow dimension. As you mentioned yourself, we're obsessed with flows, right? So if you think about the balance of payments, uh, there's going to be a piece of the balance of payments that is the amount of interest rate, you know, interest service, on all the debt that is owned abroad, uh, at the end of, of, of 2024, that might be a full percent higher 
than what it is now, right? So uh, I'm actually there's almost nobody talking about that. I don't think the IMF even has this in the in the forecast. If they listen to this podcast, maybe uh, that's offensive, but I don't think we have it in the forecast. And so um, that's something that is going to be a drag on the dollar from a balance and payments perspective, not from one day to the other, but uh, it's going to sneak up on us and it could combine with the growth effects and be a dollar negative. So um, that's something that's going to get more and more important. Yeah, I quite agree. I think, I think personally, the, I think the next six months will be dollar pretty steady, you know, because you've got this combination of very high front end yields, but also a slowing global growth. But come 2024, the fiscal dynamics and the drags there, they become quite apparent, I believe. And um, yeah, with the Fed having stopped raising its rate, you know, cycle and even cutting rates next year, that certainly should be uh, the next leg up, I think, in, in the dollar weekend trend. Much to, much to discuss, and I'm sure we'll have you on maybe uh, next year at some point to, to discuss, but uh, I think we'll, we'll leave it here. And thanks very much, Jeff. Greatly appreciate having you on. And indeed, we'll uh, look forward to catching up with you next year. Very good. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad we got it done finally. <laughs>